Hello and welcome back to the Wisconsin Law in Action podcast, where we discuss new and forthcoming scholarship at the University of Wisconsin Law School professors. I'm your host, Chris Turner, and my guest today is Professor Richard Monette. Professor Monette is here today to discuss a series of initiatives that he is involved with, including a recent $1 million grant to the Menominee Nation. We'll also be talking about a series of working papers that he's working on that focus on property law and privatization on tribal lands and the possibility, and as Professor Monette would say, necessity of reclaiming sovereignty for tribal governments. Thank you for joining me today, Professor Monette. Thank you, Chris. Nice to be here. Thank you for inviting me. Oh, absolutely. Thanks for joining us on the podcast. Yeah. Uh, before we jump into your current work, let's find out a little bit more about your background, specifically your research and scholarly writing interests. Well, my primary research and writing is in the field of uh, federal Indian law, it normally gets called. Um, I actually uh, name my class Federal Law and the Indian Tribes, using the phrase that is in the Commerce Clause. Um, you know, Native American law, American Indian law, uh, generally, though, it's it's American law, mm -hmm. and people forget that. Uh, it's not... We're not doing Ho-Chunk law, we're not doing what sometimes gets labeled tribal law, which I think is an unfortunate term, frankly, um, but it gets labeled that. Uh, I have taught a course or two um, on tribal law, uh, but for the most part we do this every year, and that's what I research and study and think most about. But I also teach um, water rights, and so I you know, do my best to stay on top of that. I get invited to actually consult or participate on a water law dispute uh, on occasion. Um, I teach uh, conflict of laws, which um, has, frankly, a good amount of overlap, at least in theory and just thinking, uh, with the federal Indian law. And then I teach um, Wisconsin Constitution and Government, which doesn't have a natural overlap, but it does for me because a lot of what I do, and probably some of what we'll talk about today, is in drafting tribes' constitutions. So it's just really a sort of an exercise in uh, comparison and you know, just really constitutionalism sort of um, work. Mm -hmm. yeah. This is part of why I'm so glad to have you on the podcast. It's such a wide swath of great topics that you uh, focus on here that I'm interested to hear about. Yeah, well, thankfully, our, our law school, for the most part, not always, um, takes account of that because <laughs> <laughs> other people specialize in something, corporations or contracts or property, and then they teach two or three classes, and largely it's the same idea, oftentimes the same cases, and mine are not at all. <laughs> you know, maybe two or three cases overlap between water law and federal Indian law, let's say, but for the most part they are um, pretty disparate, and uh, and which, you know, that, it takes time. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yes, and yeah. I'm, I'm, again, finding the time to do this, I was like, <laughs> we're going to do our best to find the time to talk with this, so thanks yeah. again for joining us. Yeah. Here. So let's jump into your current work. The, the first reason we asked you to join the podcast today is to highlight your work with the Menominee Nation, uh, securing a grant which created a healthy eating initiative for the tribe. What issues underlie the need for this healthy eating uh, for the Menominee tribe and for other tribes in general? Oh, sure. Well, uh, the most obvious one is, of course, you know, reinvigorating, re revitalizing the tribe's own food um, ecosystem and their own cultural cosmology regarding plants and foods and medicines, etc. And, you know, it's been a difficult history between America and all the tribes, including, including Menominee. So, you know, the, the diet has gotten um, unhealthy. The opportunities for a healthy diet have been, um, you know, um, 
harmed, basically uh, obliterated with the federal commodity food programs and food stamps and these kinds of things. So um, this is really, that's the primary purpose of this, and this is the tribe's primary purpose. Your question, though, asking about some of the underlying things are what mostly interests me. Um, of course, we are able to, let's say, look at some of today's foods in America, with Americans generally not realizing, not knowing, that a lot of those foods are derivative of indigenous foods, uh, the obvious ones, you know, corn and potatoes and tomatoes and, and things like that. And um, so from a law perspective, interestingly enough, you can look at some of today's American foods and trace the sort of chain of title back, right? Uh, and you can see where maybe a company got its patent for a certain kind of corn and potatoes and things. Um, by uh, capturing the uniqueness of the product from the Indian tribes. And oftentimes the Indian tribes, of course, getting no value from that. So part of that will be um, um, part of this exercise, and, and hopefully we'll learn a lot about that in the process. Um, another underlying thing is, of course, uh, we get a lot of university researchers that always research uh, the tribes. and. Quite often, um, I'm going to say more often than not, from my own personal experience, they, the tribes, they um, walk away feeling like they've just been a subject of study, basically uh, feeling like lab rats, and they don't really quite know what happened or how useful it is for them. Um, and then quite often they see on the other side of the fence somebody getting a PhD or getting a grant and getting a raise, getting tenure based on these studies. And, uh, you know, that's put a sour taste in their mouths over the last 50 to 100 years or, or more. So um, part of the exercise is to say, okay, so now let's, this is what one reason to let's really direct this grant to Menominee and make them the, the, the governors of this grant. And part of the underlying thing is let's make sure that, that um, tribal culturally centered, you know, tribes lifeways centered evaluations and measurements and maybe even, you know, university acceptable metrics uh, are evolved along the way and in fact applied to what's happening here. So that, we, you know, we're going to write a report and this is America and it's an American university so we're going to have to show conventional American sort of metrics and benchmarks uh, are met and but w we want to shadow exercise and what were the tribes here? What, what were what were their objectives and goals and how do they measure them and and um, and make it a integral part of the, the 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 analysis and the reporting at the end and I and just that alone I think is going to teach us a lot uh, and hopefully you know something that'll teach other uh, researchers as, as well you know if if they want to learn that is yeah <laughs> and I hope they do <laughs> yeah <laughs> so instead of the tribes being more of a passive research subject they're taking more of an active role in this and have more of a stake I guess in the fourth ongoing yeah uh, absolutely trip. yeah I mean you know they've always had a stake unfortunately they weren't in control of it <laughs> but more control more agency here. yeah absolutely and, you know, if we can get this to work, um, this, uh, some people think this would hinder, uh, you know, research. Um, I think it will help research um, tremendously. I, you know, I 
it, you could see some initial hindering, largely because then some of the tribe's uh, uh, stake in the matter might have to be reduced to writing. And, you know, then people got to run these by lawyers and, you know, look at careful, look carefully at the wording and etc. But in the end, I think this will facilitate real research with um, all the parties walking away, uh, feeling like they, they, they got something out of it. Well, that's great. That's uh, like a that's like goal beyond a goal here to have yeah. the, the they're getting the grant for the food and for the improving of the diets, but now to probably encourage better research down the line is another right. wonderful thing that could come out of this. Right, and the Menominee tribe is nicely situated. You know, they they um, they are truly indigenous uh, to this region. Um, they have a college, uh, which is a focal point for, you know, just sort of centering some communication and, and even some of the research, etc. But they certainly have uh, some capacity at the college, and right now they have an acting uh, president who's spent some time around the university here working on the very uh, conception of the tribe reinvigorating its own cosmology into um, literal measurements and analysis and metrics for these kinds of projects. So that timing was more serendipitous than planned, but it's uh, coming together perfectly. Well, you can't argue when serendipity is working in your favor for it, something. It's, it's, nice. It doesn't always happen, and when it does, it's, it's very nice. Yes, we'll take that along with everything <laughs> right. else, sure. So there's another initiative, initiative that you've been working on as well involving access to tribal law. Um, how do most tribes or legal researchers even currently locate tribal law? Yeah, well, we'll probably come back again to the Constitution thing at some point, which I said earlier. Uh, but to be clear, uh, the Constitution work has always had this as one of its main goals, too, uh, including making the Constitution, you know, yours, tribes, uh, you know, taking ownership and, and control of it. And um, not least among those dynamics are then people starting to know what's in it. In fact, having an active hand in putting in what's in it. And uh, so that's that, that we'll come back to that, I, I think. But again, that's the always sort of um, one of the subtexts here running throughout these kinds of discussions. The, this one in particular is about when the tribe's legislative processes such as they are, uh, legislatures such as they are, um, are uh, have enacted laws uh, and um, oftentimes through varying administrations and leadership in the tribe, through varying amounts of money from the de U.S. Department of Justice or from the tribe or from the, the Bureau of Indian Affairs and the Department of Interior, all of which leads to the point that uh, they are rather chaotic. <laughs> okay, I mean, you, you can look at some of the tribe's sort of laws and, and you get that should be next to the, the definition of helter-skelter in the dictionary. Uh, and it, as I said, not entirely their fault, um, but if they don't get their arms around it now and start to recognize what they're trying to do and this juncture in American history and law, uh, it will be their fault, mm. uh, I think. Uh, and I don't mind, as a former tribal leader, I don't mind um, saying that out loud. So <clears throat> this particular exercise is to try to get them to um, uh, buy into uh, the open law library system, frankly, a nonprofit, you know, sort of well-meaning uh, system, to have a real uniform uh, process of codifying, uh, you know, sort of numbering the laws, uh, and in today's age, meaning making them more accessible, more findable, um, for at least their own 
public, if not uh, uh, the public in general. And, uh, you know, I mean, that's just the cornerstone of, of due process. You know, it's, uh, I mean, you can't expect somebody to live by law if they don't know it, and especially if they have no reason to know it, let alone expecting them to live by a law if they really have had no opportunity to be involved in making that law, uh, which is, you know, the, the, uh, one of the more essential cornerstones of due process, but at the very least, being able to know what it is, right? right. And that's the point uh, here. So um, a lot of it, by, you know, my role has been more just what it is a lot of times. I'm trying to herd together uh, stakeholders, interest holders. And so part of this was the UW Law Library, uh, the Open Law Library, finding a tribe that was willing to pay its own money to be the pilot project here, which we did. And so that tribe uh, put its laws on the Open Law Library. It's got an accessible link uh, for anybody. They didn't limit it to the tribe's public. They they did it for anybody, so you and I can jump online and, and find it. I'm and very fav in favor of that as a librarian for access <laughs> to this kind of stuff. Yeah, I'm I bet. Really yeah. Mm -hmm. Well, you and the, and the people who have to live under the laws, yes. <laughs> especially yes. people who on occasion lose their property or their liberty or maybe their lives under the law, kind of kind of nice to be able to find out what it is in a hurry. Yeah, what did I do that caused me to lose my property or liberty or what <laughs> right. have you? I'd like to know about that, please. Right. Yes. Yep. Um, so we're going to pivot a little bit here to a paper that you're currently working on. It kind of revolves around the concept of tribal property rights. Right. Can you give me some background on the current discussion of privately held property rights and publicly held government property yeah. on tribal lands? Boy, that's a lot. Yeah, that's we, a mouthful there for you. We have this canard that natives, Indians, didn't believe in private property. And um, that is just patently false. Uh, but it has been used against tribes. Uh, I mean, it's pretty easy to justify taking somebody's territory and or property or whatever you're going to call it if you've convinced yourselves that they don't believe in such a thing. It's, and it becomes particularly easy if you've convinced them that they don't believe in such a thing, <laughs> right? Now, that said, certainly the beliefs are different. And just those differences may have... Um, may have facilitated, uh, justified maybe, um, some of that exact taking. So um, not to dispense with the idea entirely, but to make sure we're getting toward the right um, uh, f focal point in the discussion. So that, th that's been an unfortunate um, thing. Uh, the fact of the matter is um, nobody believes in private property the exact same way. Uh, you know, Florida doesn't, uh, Brazil doesn't, uh, you know, uh, California doesn't the same as Arkansas, Spain doesn't the same as Russia. Everybody views it differently. So I'm quite certain that the, the, the Ojibwa tribes see it differently from the uh, Lakota tribes, let's say, even. Uh, even tribes that are right next door to each other, perhaps, uh, especially today. So more, it's about um, you know, recognizing, okay, let's see, where, how do I start this? Here's how. Uh, central, if there's any sort of pan-native philosophy and worldview, it's probably the ideas of finding a balance and finding harmony uh, and, and living that way with the people and the world around you, plants, animals, you know, sky, air, water, rocks, I mean, you name it. 
And that idea gets romanticized to the point of ridicule, which is fair enough. But it's also an idea because it's real. Because it's m m almost any tribe where I've gone back and tried to look at somebody else's rendition of what, they, what their worldview is, or their own, if they've taken the opportunity, has this kind of idea in it. So I think it's, uh, it's, it's fair to say it's real. So the point is that, that the relationship between a peoples, a collective peoples, and their territory is important, central to the ideas of sovereignty. Uh, you know, on the international plane, sovereignty is territorial integrity, a distinct peoples, and recognition by other sovereigns. So that relationship between those things is, is critical. But you quickly get to not just the relationship between the collective peoples and the territory, but the collective peoples and the subsets in that territory, which may or may not be real property. Uh, so, but, so the relationship between the collective and the property then it quickly becomes the relationship between the collective and the individual who may or may not own that property. And then it becomes the, the relationship between that individual and that property, as I said, the, who may or may not own it, and depending on how you view that. So um, you, you can't really, we can't really have a discussion of understanding where we've been with our sovereignty, where we are now, and where we intend to go without flushing this stuff out. And most importantly, um, where the balance is. So, you know, you could just a quick sort of illustration, you know, we could say Oregon with its robust public trust doctrine where people can access uh, public resources, the beaches, the mountains there, the national parks, etc., the rivers, um, sort of in disregard of any private property. Uh, I mean, in Oregon, you, you know, People walk along the beach, and if you, you your house is on the beach, you know, tough. They may even walk through your property to get to the beach, uh, even more so than other you know coastal um, polities. So, in other words, um, they Oregon has their their bundle of rights, um, like we teach in in law school. You know, we have this property, this bundle of rights, and we make all the strands in the bundle sort of the same size but the fact of the matter is my point here is they're not all the same size and so let's say the right to exclusion in Oregon is a little smaller because of that public uh, uh, trust idea on the other hand you can go to the other end of the continuum the you know the Oklahoma's or, or Texas's and uh, you know it, you generally get the idea you walk through somebody's property we shoot first and ask questions later but all that means is that Texas has found a balance between collective and individual that works for Texas make no mistake that's part of their culture they may or may not like that culture but they are in control of finding where that balances Oregon uh, you know also um, the public trust doctrine and that limited right to exclude is part of their culture they found where they think the balance is appropriate between the collective peoples, the state, and the individual and property for them, and presumably they like where that is. And if they don't, they're in control. And ironically, all of that fits nicely into the cosmology of native worldview, even though it's been skewed because we're told we don't believe in the thing at all, and it becomes a sexy thing for you know, people to say as they 
use natives as, as the tip of their revolutionary anti-establishment spear and so uh, so it gets all convoluted. The fact of the matter is the, the Sioux tribes, the Cherokee tribes, the Navajo tribes, the Chippewa tribes, they um, should be able to decide for themselves where the balance is between collective and individual. And be prior to contact and imposition of this, this property system from outside, they did that. And it was just like uh, Oregon and Texas, it was not in the same place. And the point is that they have to do that again today, and they have to realize that you have private property. You always have. You didn't go walk into Sitting Bull's Lodge and use the restroom. Yeah, I'm quite certain he had something to say about that. Okay, so, and that sounds trivial, but that's, you know, frankly, the private property in some of the tribes can get rather intellectual and abstract. I mean, you, you, you can read their stories and hear how certain families were the keeper of the lodge and the tribe and another family was the keeper of the stories and well that that's it's kind of property right and sometimes you you read about the tribes taking actions to to, to remove that from a tribe or maybe even hold the whole you know inherited chieftainship from from that family um that you know that those were values in the tribe that we today would be calling intellectual property so it wasn't all as simple as sitting bull's lodge there's some rather abstract notions too and they had every bit of that in their societies as much as we have today so it's important it's important for us to to recognize that so what we have now is the bureau of indian affairs in the united states american law has superimposed the private property system that is evolving on every single indian reservation in this country whether they like it or not, or whether they think they believe in it or not, or whether they want it to or not, it's uh, it's what's happening. And uh, classically with the allotments, not every tribe is subject to the allotments, but there's all kinds of other things where they all have um, uh, housing and urban development monies, for example. They, so they build homes. Uh, some of the laws about who takes a home when the quote-unquote owner dies sometimes the tribe takes it back sometimes it goes to a child or they'll take it back only if there is no child all those rules are a private property system all those rules are marker of of tenures of 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 ownership and property and so it's time for us to just stop this childish level of oh we didn't believe in private property and start to think about what we're doing and that too comes back uh, to the constitutions um, because if a lot of my reasons for wanting to think this through and be able to articulate it is um, to talk with tribes about it it's time to put in your constitutions that you are um, um, starting a private property system perhaps acknowledging that you always had one uh, but you're going to start to govern it and you can use their words, their the concepts. The thing is that we always get in Indian country that, well, ah, this is sounding just like the white guys in America, and it, it may it might be, but the fa the problem with that is it gives uh, gives the white guys and the Americans uh, too much credit. Uh, <laughs> they didn't think of all these ideas, by the way. Uh, they don't all belong to them. Um, so, but if you wanna if you wanna think about the tribe needing a a a marker, a document to represent ownership, like a, a deed or these things that we call them. Fair enough, you wanna register them somewhere, have a registry of deeds or just put it in a file cabinet or something, but it's time to start doing that. Um, because make no mistake, we have, we have people on reservations who 
fight over homes and cars and you know some paying for the transmission that you got, got the other guy to put in and then you didn't pay for and all of that is has property ramifications and if you and if somebody doesn't take control of that um, you know it's it's societal it's social chaos now the fact of the matter is most of the tribes have taken control of it but you know by my goodness don't call that property well that's exactly what it is I see and it's time to, to get that mm-hmm. one thing as a white guy from America I, one thing I always am fighting with against kind of my view my older viewpoint is to kind of lump all tribes into one distinct right. thing you had mentioned this a little bit to say that the Lakota and the Sioux and the Cheyenne all have different views of the property and things like that and I think yeah. that's one thing I've always had to go back and check myself on and say well each of these sovereigns have a different viewpoint of property or different yeah. cultures or what have you and I just want yeah. to emphasize that, that to me is something that I've had to untangle myself as I like dive further into the federal Indian law and all this so oh, good it's, I'm working on it <laughs> well hopefully I mean part of the reason I, I teach other courses is because then I say so let's look at this happening in Indian country and now understand why um, Texas and Oregon also identify a different sort of balance, um, fulcrum, tipping point, right, between collective and individual and their societies. And that largely determines their cultures too. And it helps us understand that we have different cultures from polity to polity, even in America. They might not be vastly different, although some are way more different than others. Um, but it helps you to understand that they do. And then it comes down to so how now how does Texas build its own constitution and laws and its relationship with the United States, its relationship with neighboring states? How does Oregon do that? So that they are in control of deciding their culture, deciding where that, that balance is. And that's the same thing with the tribes. Take control of your constitution, take control of your laws, use them as tools and or weapons to help your relationship with the Bureau of Indian Affairs, the United States, the states around you, so that you are maintaining control of where the balance is between collective and individual, because that's where your culture resides. Right? And so one of the things that's kind of laying on top of all this is the relationship with the federal government and with the states around them that you just mentioned, with the sovereigns right. that surround the tribe, the different tribes, and how the federal government especially affects right. both state sovereigns and tribal sovereigns. Right. One of the concepts that you talk about in some of the, your working papers and your previous papers are trust relationships and trust responsibilities. Can you help yeah. me untangle these two concepts a yeah. little bit and how they interplay with the different sovereign? Yeah, well, of course, the bigger concept is is sort of like a citizenship or, and or member and or subject, a citizen member or subject concept. But they, the trust idea is one of the bridges that helps to understand it. And um, for better or worse, uh, perhaps I, I, I should write this, um, we are lacking uh, clarity in the scholarship and in the case law and in any codified law uh, about those terms. We throw around the words uh, trust relationship and trust responsibility as though they are interchangeable. Um, They are not. If they are, it's in a very thin sort of scale. Uh, So for the most part, you know, to cut to the chase and the segue from the property thing, if you're talking about a trust responsibility, uh, obviously, the term itself invokes sort of a, the common law trustee idea, right? You're gonna have a, you're gonna have a, 
uh, trust corpus. You're going to have a beneficiary. You're going to have a trustee. Uh, you probably have the, um, of course, I should have looked at the terminology before I came because now I'm forgetting the person who sets up the trust, uh, the settlor, I think it's called, <laughs> right? Um, you're going to have those sort of factors at play. And, and so to the extent that that idea comports with uh, invokes a bit of American law, you can see where um, a fiduciary duty arises over the property and over its value and how it's used and if it's dispensed with, discarded, changed, you know, medium, etc. The kinds of things we, we, we deal with when we're talking about a, a corpus of property as trust. Um, and the, the analogies are easy then. And in fact, they're helpful because, you know, we get the, we have these allotments on Indian reservations and even the way the native, uh, uh, pro-native scholarship, uh, if I can call it pro-native scholarship, probably a better word for, than that. But, they, you know, they, they talk about, well, the, the, the Bureau of Indian Affairs gave allotments, you know, or that sort of thing. And but no, nobody gave my family an allotment. That was my family's land, right? And, and maybe even a little more than that. Um, and if it was not my family's land, it was my tribe's land, So, which is more important. So if somebody is the settlor of my allotment, it's not the Bureau of Indian Affairs, it's, it's me or my tribe, right? And, uh, and that's more helpful for determining a whole bunch of things, including who, who's going to govern it, you know, that sort of thing, uh, determining um, its value, its value in relation to your tribal neighbors, the whole back to the whole collective versus individual balancing. And so that's important. So, so the trust responsibility is a property concept, just flat out. The trust relationship is a political concept. It's more tied to that um, political relationship we talk about that is the cornerstone of sustaining this relationship. Um, we argue, as we're having to in the Indian Child Welfare Act cases today, these are not race-based statutes. This is not a race-based relationship. This is a politically-based relationship. That's what the trust relationship refers to. And um, unfortunately, we have things that sort of get cloaked to kind of fall underneath. We had some treaties that required, you know, 25 years of payments, let's say, annuities, uh, maybe farm equipment, things like that. Um, so it seemed like they were more like a trust responsibility property thing. Uh, for the most part, those provisions have, have all reached their sunset uh, uh, term. Nonetheless, there are some moral obligations uh, and maybe even some legal um, regarding now the federal government providing money for housing or health or education. And we get people that call that the trust responsibility. But that's not property, and you're never going to sue as though that is property or win as though there's a fiduciary obligation with property, and that's not going to happen. That's more about the political relationship. So, and that distinction is important, and I've, I've tried to say it in various groups. I've not written about that either, as I should. Um, um, there's a, there's a property-based concept of the trust responsibility, a political-based concept of the trust relationship, and it would behoove us to ferret out that distinction and, and, to, and to use it, uh, because it, it can cut both ways, but it can definitely be used in our favor. Um, where there seems to be some some confusion. Well, hopefully this podcast will reach a few people, and, and in lieu of writing about it, as you may, right. <laughs> this will help you get the word out a little bit about this very important distinction between relationship right. and responsibility right. or trust. So if we might, please from that trust relationship then segue, as I said, trust responsibility segueing from property, 
the trust relationship then segueing into a more political relationship. And um, we seem to have gotten the lexicon, the, the, the wording down about government-to-government relationships and, you know, sovereign-to-sovereign, that kind of thing. But we have gotten thoroughly confused by conflating uh, several concepts and, and uh, confounding a couple of other concepts and confusing uh, a few con- concepts. And it's going to be increasingly important for us to figure this out, that this, this political relationship is not just between your public institutions, these governments, the tribal government and the federal government or state government. It's also between your people. Mm. And that has to be a political relationship. Uh, and in the international law sense, a, a territorial integrity, a distinct peoples. So in deciding the identity and status of the peoples in this political relationship, you have to calculate in territory. There has to be some legal significance to this territory called reservation boundaries, etc. Or we're not going to advance the identity and thus the culture as far as we might, and as are protected as well as we might. So th- that's hugely important. And then um, that dovetails with the distinct uh, polity, distinct people's idea. Um, if the territorial boundaries mean nothing, and natives and non-natives are able to just cross willy-nilly, not just physically across reservation boundaries, where the tribe's laws apply and where they don't apply, um, or arguably where the state's laws apply and where they don't apply, uh, if they're just able to cross without any uh, ramifications beyond that physicality, but in in the more abstract political identity sense, um, we're going to lose that political identity. We're going to lose that prong of the international law requirement of a distinct peoples. And, our, and we don't seem to be getting that. Now... The first thing I often hear when I say that is, well, we had dual citizenship. Like, well, you can call it dual citizenship or federal citizenship if you want. Um, Wisconsinites think they have sort of a federal citizenship with America. They're Americans and they're Wisconsinites. Um, Frankly, some of the people in Texas, because of that Lone Star State treaty relationship that they still have with the United States, sometimes they think of themselves less as federal citizens and dual citizens. Right, Texans first. I'm I'm a Texan first and an American second, yeah. So Thomas Jefferson said that, by the way, about being a Virginian. I'm a Virginian first and an American second of all people, right? So so that's important to, to, to think about in the Native context. And, you know, sure, you can be a dual or a federative citizen with America if you want, but that's not the problem. The problem is when you get to the next plane of sovereignty, you know, are you a Navajo citizen or an Arizona citizen? Are you a Turtle Mountain citizen or a North Dakota citizen? Because that's more like asking, are you a North Dakota citizen or a Montana citizen? That's not that federal identity that all Americans share in one way or another. This is more, you know, the unitary state, that sovereign with inherent sovereignty, Texas, California, New Jersey, you know, Mississippi, it's that. And which do you identify with tribes, right? 
And, uh, you know, because if this union were dissolved, God forbid, but, you know, it's not like we didn't have almost somebody on the Supreme Court at one point uh, who uh, made that a cornerstone, a part of his, his, his legal thinking. Um, you know, if this union were dissolved, there well, there wouldn't be a union. It wouldn't wouldn't be a question about dual citizenship with the union. It would be um, when the union is gone, and there's just you know Montana and North Dakota and Wyoming. Will those states recognize your tribes the way that this federal structure has been um, uh, built to recognize them? Right, or will and they be subsumed into the will the that, tribes be subsumed? That's, into that's the right. That's them? right. And nothing will make that subsuming into the state, that subsumption into the state, easier than having a 20, 30, 40-year argument that, well, we're citizens of the state anyway, so we get to vote in your elections and all that. So, and I go back to then something I said earlier, the question of where the tribe's laws in giving territorial integrity, legal significance to the territory, where the tribe's laws apply and where they don't apply, and then I added, or where the state's laws apply and where they don't apply, right? We want to argue that the state's laws don't apply on the reservations, but if that union is gone, and you've argued yourselves successfully, you tribes have argued yourselves successfully, that your there's no distinction between your political peoples and their political peoples. Your people are citizens of the state and should be able to vote for those laws and those leaders. Well, then those laws are going to apply to you. And if and when that happens, you've lost. Okay, and that's there's not there's no gray area there. Uh, I mean, I'm happy to listen to people's arguments, but I'm not quite sure where, how that'll change anything for me. They're not on the <laughs> podcast, though, so you get to say it. Sorry, sorry to sound that way, <laughs> but I, when if that occurrence uh, uh, obtains, um, the tribes have lost. And I'm not sure that their own advocates, scholarly and otherwise, I'm not sure that their own advocates in the courtroom um, are telling them this as clearly as they need to hear it. In fact, I'm not even sure if some of them understand it. So we have one of the, a couple of the most illustrious organizations, three or four of them, you know, the National Congress of American Indians, the Native American Rights Fund, and they, they have these push to vote. And, you know, again, tribes are federative Americans just like Wisconsinites are. So Wisconsinites should vote in a federal election, and Menominee tribal members should vote in a federal election. There's no problem there. That's that federative. But uh, then Wisconsinites vote in Wisconsin's election. Menomineites vote in Menominee's election. But should they be crossing over there, right? Yeah, and that's, um, it's going to become quite uh, clearly illustrated soon. And probably because of the force that the National Congress of American Indians or the Native American Rights Fund bring to these matters. So you get Native American Rights Fund bring actual cases, arguing that, you know, uh, the tribal members in, uh, on the reservations in North Dakota have to be able to vote in North Dakota's elections. And I say yes and no. You're half right. Why? Because the Constitution says North Dakota runs the election for federal officers, so our people need to go vote at North Dakota's elections for the federative officers, for the senator, U.S. senators. and But um, they, quite frankly, um, had better be careful and better think about, have some robust discussions, and in my opinion, it's quite clear, should not be voting for state leaders there. And, and um, 
you know, so we get the Native American Rights Fund that brings a case, and it doesn't quite make this distinction as well as it might have. Now, it seemed that the first time I saw what they had written, they had actually blurred it and made it worse, and then some of the second and third things I saw, they had backed off a bit and left room for the argument that we're just talking about the federal election here, not the, not the state election. So, okay, fair enough. But make sure you're explaining to everybody then why we're not certain here and let the tribal leaders and tribal people be fully informed and then decide if this is what they want. So now there's a settlement between tribes and the state, a quote-unquote settlement, kind of a settlement of one of those cases. But for among other things, it says, so now the state uh, is going to go and be obligated and or at least will of its own accord um, help the tribes establish physical addresses in the reservations. Now, my grandpas are rolling over in their graves hearing that. You keep your state out of our reservation. We'll make our own addresses. That doesn't require any genius. And you certainly don't have any more genius than we do, right, in doing that. Uh, we'll do that. But here we were begging that, you know, we want your state IDs in the face of this data technology revolution of who's holding the information as king, we want your state, we want to give you all our information, get your state ID so we can vote. Now we want your state addresses, right? And we want it in your system, right? And, and just talk about um, just inviting uh, colonialization, just inviting victimhood. Sounds like a lot of blurring and a lot of dilution that could come through this, where the state is yeah. saying, here's our addresses, here are our IDs on the, on the reservation. Yeah. So, you know, I mean, I'm some ways this kind of talk makes me the bad guy, because a lot of tribal leaders will listen to their favorite scholars and, you know, attorneys, and um, so then I'm the bad guy. I'm okay with that. Uh, tribal leaders are tribal leaders. I do think that if they were properly informed and had a robust discussion, they would come to the correct conclusion, mine, <laughs> or they would come to theirs, and I'd be far more okay with it, because it's, they're the tribal leaders, as I once was. So I'm okay with that. But um, I also, you know, sort of become sort of the, the stepchild for the, for the law professoriate, for example, in this field, even though I'm probably... Uh, one or the only one of the very few who actually grew up in an Indian reservation whose grandparents and whose dad were on the tribal council and I lived and breathed this stuff my whole life and so I talked this way well they don't they don't always want to hear that and uh, I, I, I find that um, uh, fascinating uh, I um, uh, you find yourself without a home sometimes oh yeah uh, stuck yeah between a rock and a hard place yeah absolutely yeah uh, and some of them acknowledge it. I mean, I, you, you go back, you know, you're not supposed to immediately look at your tenure file, the review letters from, from people. Uh, but over time, they, they let you. And I was very surprised. I think I had five of them, I think. But a couple of them were very clear on that point, that Richard's in a, in a good place, but also a bad place, because he is able to say things because of his background that the rest of us can't say. And to me, that's a huge admission in some ways um, of their own constraints, that they, they, they feel they have to cheerlead for tribes or they will be blackballed as this anti-Indian sort of law professor who does Indian law. 
and they they can't have that. And I, I you know, I care. I, I mean, I, I'm human. I care about whether people like me or not. Um, most people would say I don't care, and they'd be largely right, um, because <laughs> um, uh, blackwell me. I, I I got a house on the reservation. I've had it my whole life, and I go back there, you know, five, six, seven times a year. Um, and uh, and it's my my son lives there. My brothers and sisters live there, and thousands, literally thousands of relatives. Like <laughs> right? there were ten siblings in my dad's family, and eight in my mother's, and they all had children. And I'm quite literally hundreds of hundreds of, of relatives, and that's where I'm from. Mm -hmm. And um, so I'm I, I'm okay with that. I, I hope that at some point they will all come around to consider that and to maybe listen a little bit. But so far, so far not so much. It's it's pretty interesting. <laughs> it, it is, and you mostly answer this question. But I want to answer it more, ask it more directly. Is what do you want researchers, especially, to take away from your work? Um, I want them to take away that everything he does, if you look hard enough, um, is classic sovereignista, right? Uh, he wants you to think about trust relationship and trust responsibility, citizenship, territory, all this stuff. He wants you to think about it in a way that can be reduced to practicalities in the tribe's constitutions and laws and in their own cultures in a way that protects their sovereignty, preserves it, advances it, makes it informed, makes it theirs. That's what he wants. Yeah. I mean, all, all to me, all, all societies um, want to determine their own, who they are, collectively and individually, identity. Uh, and at some point in that conversation, you can say, so they want to determine their own culture. That's what it comes down to, really. And especially if then that culture is the, the balance between that collective identity and that individual identity with property or citizenship or whatever it is, they, they want to do that. But um, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to buy into what American law says uh, quite a bit on that. Not entirely, but for purpose of discussion. This is, this is America. We're talking about American law, for better or worse. And, you know, you don't get there unless you have a high degree of, of autonomy. And uh, you don't get that degree of autonomy without that cultural autonomy, and you don't get the cultural autonomy without a high degree of political autonomy, and you don't get the political autonomy unless you have a territory, some territorial autonomy. You don't get that unless you get people buy in, or unless you can force them to buy in, meaning you get that sort of uh, civic uh, popular autonomy, people-based autonomy. Uh, and if you get that and the people buy in and or voluntarily or involuntarily and they become part of the system and become part of determining where that balance is, you've come around the full circle of sovereignty and, and, and it works. And I think all peoples in the world did that or wanted to do that. Um, and they succeeded to various degrees and, that, and the Indian tribes are, are no different. Than, than that. Um, and if they are different, some people say, well, because of the history of the world, um, they may be even more illustrative of that today. But, you know, I mean, it's, uh, I, I want, yeah, sovereignty. I, I, they want them to govern themselves. You know, you, um, you, uh, you know, all societies made laws, or they, or they wouldn't be here. Right. All so societies sad, yeah. enforced laws or they wouldn't be here. Mm -hmm. All societies made up of human beings had disputes and they had to resolve those disputes or they wouldn't be here. 
and and the tribes um, hit every one of those prongs or they wouldn't be here but they're here and so we know that they did that stuff and we know that they did it for purposes of determining for themselves who they are collectively and individually and our thing today is this is the modern world how do you work that into a constitutive polity a written constitution maybe an unwritten constitution not so likely today uh, you know people always say well england has one and the answer is well england's an island you know so, um, so there's that uh, but when you when the boundaries are more fluid these things are more the territorial more autonomy is a little bit easier when you have the island yeah, exactly. surrounded by a state or another sovereign. <laughs> exactly. And so that's what I want them to take away, that that, that was the uh, the target for everything I said or, or wrote. And, um, and you know, so they can disagree with me. Well, we'll see who wins that in the end. Um, part of the way you got to couch the argument is that you think they're wrong. You know, I don't want to win. I don't want to win it that way. You know, you're wrong, and what's going to happen here is going to prove you're wrong. I don't want to win it that way, but you know, uh, unfortunately, that's one of the dynamics on the table. Yeah, with a lot of things we teach, by the way. You know, this discovery stuff. You know, I mean, you know, how do you discover the lands where somebody lived? Well, okay, that's 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 a fair sentiment, and it helps get the discussion started. But, you know, the fact of the matter is that's not anywhere near what the discovery doctrine means as a matter of law. And it's important to understand that. And, and rather than taking that negative position, which reifies and becomes central to the analysis, we make it real, um, you know, discard it, right? Because very clearly it was, you know, the, the discovery doctrine applied to the Christian sovereigns from Europe that decided to abide by it. it you know, it, it wasn't that the natives couldn't sell, it was that those five or six sovereigns couldn't buy or couldn't acquire without the approval of the others. You know, it was an agreement among them. And the wording in those Marshall Trilogy cases is perfectly clear on that. So, now granted, there's a gray area, like as there often is. So the one area where Marshall just simply says, and so if all the six buyers agreed with that and said, if any other sovereign, not one of these six, tries to acquire from the Indian tribes, number one, that's an act of war, and we'll take you out. You know, Portugal, right? Um, number two, if we all agree among us six, and everybody else agrees because they don't want to go to war, well, that then, in effect, by necessary implication, means the tribes are stuck a little bit with that. And so, at least to that extent, they've lost their full sovereignty to, to decide who they want to sell to. Okay, he says that very clearly in a case. Right? It's a gray area, nonetheless, he, he articulates it very clearly. And that's what the discovery doctrine is. Right? Um, and I just, people just want to, you know, use the natives as the tip of, again, their revolutionary anti-establishment spear. And, you know, you, this discovery is inhumane and it's not, well, that's not what it says. And it doesn't help us to, to inflate the wrong analysis and just to make a point. Um, you know, we got this thing going on with the plenary uh, power and plenary authority right now. Um, you know, the, to cut to the chase... Um, we have cases that make it clear that the states and their people in the Commerce Clause gave the federal government plenary power or authority over the states and the people 
to deal with international law. We have in the Constitution, the states and their people gave to the federal government in the Commerce Clause the plenary power or authority over the states and the people to deal with interstate commerce. So international commerce, interstate commerce. Well, in that same Commerce Clause is the Indian tribes, but we just don't say that that way. And so let me say it, okay? The, the states and their people gave to the federal government in the Commerce Clause the plenary power and authority over the states and the people to deal with the Indian tribes. And it's important to recognize that that is America's constitutionalism read consistently. And it is, in fact, accurate. It's, it's as accurate as can be. In the Indian Child Welfare Act, the federal government invoked the Commerce Clause and its plenary power over the states and their people to impose on them some requirements, including notifying tribes and maybe transferring jurisdiction over children to the Indian tribes. That was not plenary power or authority over the Indian tribes. It was plenary power over the states and the people who gave it that plenary power. You know, little good old-fashioned democracy and consent, right? And often that little ellipses about the Indian tribes and the Commerce Clause where people yeah. kind of read the international in between the states and then you miss that little Indian tribe thing. At the end exactly. Clearly. Other examples are the treatment as a state provisions in environmental laws. Mm. You know, the, 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 the EPA, the federal statute, has the authority to treat tribes as states uh, for setting water quality or air quality standards, and in some cases, those standards are have extraterritorial impact outside the reservations. In other words, infringing on the people in the states. People in the states don't like that. And people that well, I have plenary power over the tribes. That's not plenary power over the tribes. Right? The the states and the people <laughs> gave the federal government through the Commerce Clause the plenary power over the states and the people to deal with the tribes in a way that might infringe on the states and the people when they're dealing with environmental matters. That's what happened there. And it's that important to read just something as simple as that that we don't. I, I, I implore you, read a hundred Indian law, art, law review articles that talk about plenary power or, you know, what the old Indian folks say, plenty power. <laughs> the Congress has plenty power. Well, it does that. Um, you know, I mean, the plenary idea itself, then, when you, when you tie it to the flip side. Have we had instances where the United States Congress has just flat out, you know, superimposed its power on the Indian tribes? Of course we have. I don't call that plenary power. That constitutionalizes it and almost justifies it a bit. That's just an exercise of raw, unabridged, unmitigated, unconsented to, immoral, unethical, unchristian-like power. That's what that is. That doesn't have anything to do with authority at all. There's no plenary power there, not constitutional power, just power. Power, yeah. You have nuclear bombs and we don't, so you tell us you, you're going to enter into a compact to get the state's agreement for gaming, and that's just the way it is. That ain't plenary power. That's power. Okay? And it'll go down in history as power. Okay? And you, you know, the, you know, I don't even want to hear any arguments back from any non-Indian professors on that. I don't even want to hear it. Save it for St. Pete at the pearly gates. You're going to need it. Okay? Because that's just pure power. Okay. Sorry. See, get, get me going off on a podcast. Right? That's okay. <laughs> um, so where can people find more of your work? Where can they find what you've written, what you've talked about out there in the wide world? Well, this is my problem. So I got tenure, and I, I think I wrote eight articles before tenure. 
but I got here to do service, and there was a good agreement with this law school to do that because we were in the. I got hired in the midst of the ugly treaty, fishing wars, and uh, oh, right. mm-hmm. and so I got here, and them saying. You know, will you start a center? Will you uh, form relationships with the tribes and get some students down, get some of our students working up there? A lot of the stuff that we've kind of have done. So, uh, nonetheless, I had to, I think, still sort of meet the research and writing part of the tenure file, so um, uh, I did. Uh, But then afterwards, tried to turn to, okay, let's get this service stuff going. Mm -hmm. Let's start drafting constitutions and laws for the tribes. We've had students... um, assist me normally in assisting a tribal attorney uh, in drafting entire constitutions for tribes or uh, an amendment or two or seven or eight for tribes. Uh, Students have almost uh, always helped with those. Uh, We have um, at least 13, I would say. Uh, Totally new constitutions have been adopted that we've participated in. Um, we've also had uh, four or five others drafted that that failed um, for a variety of reasons, a whole interesting discussion in and of itself about the role that the Bureau of Indian Affairs plays or the role that people who don't live in the reservation play. When, you know, Again, they're not the ones really living by this constitution. Right. Interesting dynamics. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so at least one tribe, if not two, had that effect uh, going for it. Um, we also had drafted probably seven or eight out there that are sitting on shelves that, you know, okay, we're done or close to done. Uh, well, now we want to think about it for a while. And they haven't had an election either way, up or down. Um, we've, we've had a couple of them drafted um, uh, that were either not voted on or one voted down, and then the tribe borrowed from it liberally to make their laws. You know, one tribe didn't have a judiciary. It was one of the reasons for having the Constitution discussion. We uh, drafted up pretty good. Uh, The people of the tribe did. Uh, I'm just drafting. I'm just a technician. People of the tribe put together a pretty uh, decent judiciary. And um, it failed. Uh, That was because of, in my opinion, one of the the BIA's um, uh, meddling and off-reservation population, both coming together there. Um, but so the tribe took that entire provision and, by law, created a, a, an independent judiciary and almost word for word, for example. So, you know, you call that a failure and you call it, you know, it's just... Call it a just, stealth success. Yeah, it's a, it, and if nothing else, a great learning experience and, you know, it's just the, the, the spice of, of life. Uh, you know, we've, we've had... Of course, now you can, a couple, two or three tribes have adopted constitutions that didn't ask me at all. I used to get asked almost every time, believe it or not, I, as far as I could tell. I mean, I get calls from around the country, which I'm not bragging about, and sometimes I'm complaining about it, but I was always okay with it. Um, but then there were three or four that got adopted uh, out there, and um, one, the first one I was told about, I said, well, let me, let's, let me send it to me. It's interesting. I just want to study them. And, well, it was almost word for word what we had written for another tribe. <laughs> so I, I, hope that lo- of, I hope those lawyers didn't charge that tribe too much. <laughs> <'cause> they, <laughs> and, and, and it wouldn't. writing's in the bloodstream. It's <laughs> out there kind of affecting everything. Well, and the sad part about that is it almost falls into the, the boilerplate sort of thing we, we accused the BIA of. Right. So probably those lawyers either had a very compliant committee or they went into a back room 
Um, because I'll admit in the 13 or the more that I've drafted, things start to look alike, but there's only so many ways you can say lawmaking, law enforcing, and resolving disputes and all this and that. And usually so, you find a way to say it, and it's the right way to say it. Yeah. So why are you fixing what is not right. broken? And the and the people, the committee, if they're if they're there in a genuine, meaningful capacity, they they change the wording a bit always. So when it comes out to be almost word for word, okay, this is the exact kind of thing <laughs> that we accused the BIA of doing, and I really hope the lawyer didn't charge the tribe too much for that. <laughs> uh, but so that's that's been an excellent uh, excellent exercise and learning experience for a lot of students. So right now I got working on three uh, with law, with the lawyers of three tribes. Um, one of them having a terribly difficult enrollment matter. They were um, using the unfortunate term uh, terminated. Uh, they had their relationship with the U.S. terminated and then restored. And in that process, you know, they're, they're, for better or worse, the U.S. needs to play a more a granular role in things like enrollment, and it didn't. And so here they are, however much longer later from that restoration of termination and they have a mess we also have a tribe um, that is having a um, a mess regarding their relationship between their government and their uh, business they're one of their main money-making businesses and um, they're finding themselves in um, state court you know and being asked questions about about um, the tribe's law, really no reason for it to be in, in state court. And so they, they've called and I said, yeah, you can use this constitution as an opportunity to set the table for your side, uh, use it as a, as a tool or, or a weapon. Uh, it's not gonna win the day, you know, don't get crazy with it the way we're sort of seeing with some people who are going around convincing the tribes to do this rights of nature stuff. It's not gonna do that as they're all learning the hard way. Um, but it's nonetheless you should use it and so we have another tribe that's uh, they have a difficult uh, issue they have a, their tribe is in an association of tribes and um, the balance of powers is getting blurred and <laughs> so there are a lot of interesting fascinating legal issues that come up yeah well thanks for bringing that up because that's a form of writing that it often fall. It doesn't show up like in your scholarship, like what you're talking about. This is right. stuff that's more you're out there doing that, like you mentioned, the practical stuff. Right. Uh, this is an important stuff that you're not reading in a in a law review article or what have you. This is yeah. stuff that's being actually done for the tribes on the yeah. reservations with the tribal leaders and councils. So that's really yeah. nice to hear about all that. Yeah. And of course, we just got what you have written for law reviews and whatnot up on SSRN as well recently with some of your older publications as well. Right. So if you find your, all your stuff on SSRN, you can they can search your name and find what you've written right. for more formal scholarly stuff as well, right? Right. Mm -hmm. right. That's great. Um, is there anything else you'd like to cover? Um, you know, um, unless you have something. I mean, there's the, you know, I, I, t I teach this field and I give hour-long, hour day-long, uh, two-day-long uh, workshops um, so I could talk forever on it. Um, I, I, I won't. Uh, but I really appreciate your inviting me to give me an opportunity to do this. We'll see how it plays out. If it's 
if it works well, perhaps we should do this more often. I agree. I think that I'd like to have you back <laughs> okay. on the podcast and we can continue to delve in. We, we scratch, believe it or not, we just scratched the surface on a lot of these topics. So right. There's a lot more we can talk about. We even, didn't even talk about something like PL280 or other things right. where sovereignty interplay is and uh, the, the current The current hemp and cannabis issues and right. the way they're kind of turning PL280 on its head. Mm-hmm. And yeah. then you, you mentioned That's gaming cool. laws just very, very briefly. That's a right. whole different section that we could discuss as well. Yeah. But for now, we'll say thank you very much for joining us today, Professor Monette. As always, you can find Professor Monette's scholarship on our podcast page. We'll link to both his SSRM page and to his faculty scholarship page in the University of Wisconsin Law School Digital Repository. In addition, we'll link out to some of those constitutions that Professor Monette mentioned that he has helped author or create. You can find out more about the Menominee Nation Healthy Eating Initiative on the UW School of Medicine and Public Health page linked along with this podcast. Thanks to everyone for your support of this podcast. This is our ninth podcast, and I hope that you have learned more about the work of the UW Law School faculty and found out about the great articles they're producing. You can find all these articles and all these podcasts at our website at wilawinaction.law.wic.edu. I hope that by now you're subscribed to our Wisconsin Law in Action podcast, but if you aren't, you can find us at the Apple iTunes Store, Stitcher, or Google Play. Or listen to our full archive again at wilawinaction.law.wic.edu. Thank you for listening. Join us next time as we return to the world of criminal law and discuss recidivism rates and sentencing with Professor Cecilia Klingel. See you then, and happy researching.